0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. It's found on page 406 in the Bibles in your rows. If you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read, Nehemiah 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land and take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks
1: be to God. God. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Zach, and I'm on staff here at New City. I uh, work with students mostly from seventh grade to our seniors. Uh, If we haven't met yet, I look forward to meeting, and maybe we can talk about this idea. And this is the idea, that there are two types of people in the world. Uh, There are those that make their bed, and there are those who don't make their bed. Um, In my life, I confess that I have mostly been the latter. I have not made my bed often, as as often as I wish. Um, Marriage, seven years of marriage has certainly made me better at making my bed, uh, but I really still struggle with it. And I think, if I look back, I can trace the root of why. I think it was this idea that I had, which is why would I make my bed if it's just going to get messy again, right? And you can apply this line of thinking to so many different areas of life. Why expend the energy things are going to get messy, and I know they're going to get messy. So if you read the Bible, and particularly the book of Judges, you'll notice a haunting cycle that kind of comes through, and it plays out through the whole of Scripture. God will rescue his people, and his people for a time will rejoice and obey him, and then inevitably they go after other gods and forsake God. But then, what happens, right? They experience Uh, the fruit of their sin, the fruit of their leaving God, and they cry out to God after they feel like they've been oppressed and God comes and rescues them. This cycle continues over and over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament, which makes us kind of beg the question, right, why does Israel commit to being faithful if they know that things are going to get messy, that they will eventually fail and create some serious consequences for themselves? Why commit to keeping God's covenant if they know they can't? Why should we be a people who commit despite our imperfections and despite the fact that things are going to get messy sometimes? So last week we looked at Nehemiah 9, and we saw probably one of the most detailed apologies and confessions of sin in the whole Bible. We're functionally kind of popping into that cycle I just talked about in the best part, right? Where God has restored Israel, and Israel is now kind of committing themselves to follow him. And as you read through Nehemiah 9, Israel lists both their personal faults and their corporate failures, and you notice that they really leave no stone unturned. They confess it all. They owned their forsaking of their responsibilities uh, to honor one another, to be faithful to God, and to not neglect his house. However, even more striking than this, than their confession, is that in every place where they note their unfaithfulness, you see God's faithfulness acknowledged, God's goodness displayed. Where you would expect God to be dismissive, he's merciful. Where you would expect God to reject Israel, he disciplines them in love. And it's because of God's faithfulness that we can kind of ask our main question today. Why be a people who commit even though we fail? We're going to be answering that question by looking at these three points. First, that commitment is necessary. Second, that commitment is relational. And third, that commitment is refining let's talk about how commitment is necessary. So if you look in verse 29, you see that all the people, they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, his rules, his statutes. And reading this can sound really steep, right? In fact, reading the whole of this chapter just sounds steep. It's a lot of stuff that they're committing to. The rules and statutes they're agreeing to are holistic, and they touch every part of their life. And going through the chapter, you can kind of see they're agreeing to maintain domestic, commercial, agricultural, social, religious, and economic fidelity to God. And that touches every corner of their lives, right? Their personal lives, their familial lives, their corporate lives. This is a lot more than just committing to making their bed. So why would they do this? Many of us in Western and postmodern societies find the idea of commitment as 100% counterintuitive to the idea of freedom. Commitment, in other words, can oftentimes feel like death to our freedom. For instance, choosing to marry one person closes the door to all other people you might enjoy. Choosing one job or career is shutting the door to all other potential professional avenues. Staying committed to a place like Cincinnati or Norwood is forsaking all other experiences you could have in different places. Investing in a people is limiting yourself to one community and not experiencing what's going on in another community. So with the cost that comes to committing, it's no wonder that a lot of us choose to keep our options open, right? And on top of that, we are people who've experienced the wounds of commitments that have gone awry, right? The rate of marriage has been steadily decreasing, and one of the reasons of this is the wounds that a lot of violent or indifferent marriages have caused on kids who then grow up and kind of say, I'd rather have the the sense of modern freedom than committing to something that can be this horrible. Simply put, sometimes the risk we would have to take to commit can often feel too high. And additionally, there are many of us who love pleasure. We love to feel good and oftentimes relationships can get hard or they can get boring. And we want the opportunity to exit so we can find something or someone that's a little bit more exciting that helps us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Simply put, the pleasure we would miss out on in order to commit Can often feel like just too much. The cost, the risk, the missing out seems just too much to sacrifice and make commitments. And because of this, we'd rather not commit to anything that would bind us and instead embrace lifestyles that offer us total freedom from place, from people, from commitment, and from calling. And in doing this, we make the assumption that not being being bound means that we're actually not committed to anything, that we're free. However, what we miss is that we're in fact bounding ourselves by the very desire to avoid commitments. The freedom we think we have is really just being bound by another set of commitments. So I'm currently in a cohort with a group of guys. We're reading this book called uh, Time Management for Mortals," which is great if you're a mortal and need help with your time management. Uh, And one of its main premises is that we often struggle the most because we refuse to accept the reality that we are finite, that we have limits. We push the bounds of our time, we push the bounds of our resources and relationships to the point where we are utterly depleted, exhausted. And the author points this out, that there is an immense freedom accepting one's limits and understanding the nature of commitment as a limited creature. When we make commitments in line with our finite nature, it actually helps us to enjoy what we are committed to. He offers kind of a, a countercultural argument that pushes us to realize that it's not that we aren't making commitments, but that we are making commitments that are contrary to our nature. We are committing to things with the assumption that we have unending amounts of energy, that we have the best of motives, and also that we have the wisdom to navigate everything all at once. So in short, it's not that we aren't making commitments, it's actually that we're making bad commitments that are contrary to our nature. I think this is helpful, though, because it reminds us that we're all making commitments. We're all committed to something. So instead of trying to eliminate our commitments, we should instead be asking the question, am I making the right kind of commitment? And this is where our faith comes in, where we get to evaluate, just as the Israelites in our passage today did. Are these the commitments that are actually in line with my nature? Is committing to God something that I'm designed to do? The Israelites, having gone through trials of slavery and captivity, were forced to see the stark reality of their previous commitments that had let them down. And maybe that's where some of us are today, right? Trials in our life have exposed the fruit of a lot of our commitments, and we're feeling the pull of God to reevaluate where our allegiances lie. And biblical wisdom shows us that every commitment will cost, even the ones that seem to promise us this idea of unrestricted freedom. It's our job, then, to look at God's word and to see if it accurately acknowledges the needs of human nature and if it's worth committing to the God of the Bible. And it's my bet that it is. That when we look into God's word and see his character, we see his ability to commit to desperate, needy sinners, that we'll see that he can fit to us, that his commitments are exactly what we need. And so to partially answer this question for today, why be a people who commit even though we fail, our passage today reminds us that we're designed to commit. It's what we do. It's our job and God's grace to actually help us then to navigate if we're committed to the right thing or more accurately, the right person, right, to Jesus. Which brings us to our next point, that commitment is relational. So when we think about commitment or obedience to God, we tend to think about it in practical or what I'll call mechanical terms, right? So I prayed today, check the box. Uh, I read my Bible today, I'll check the box. I tied this month, I'll check the box. Or maybe here's a little bit more of a a fuller example. Imagine that you're committing uh, to go pick up your kids and maybe some of your friends' kids from school, right? There are processes, practical and mechanical, that you have to commit to, right? You're carving out the time in your schedule to go pick them up. You are making sure that the car has gas, which in our economy today is a tough, tall order. Um, You're navigating all the traffic on the way there. You had to make sure that you got all the stuff that you got from Lowe's the other day out of the car so you can fit kids in there. And then you get in the carpool line and you just pray for sanity. And that's just getting there, right? Let alone the return trip. However, what we tend to miss in thinking about all those mechanical or practical processes is the relational reality of that. We tend to miss the value of trust and appreciation that builds up over time as you go and pick up other families' children. How much they really admire that and appreciate that. Uh, we tend to miss the value of that miraculous, like three-minute conversation that you have with one of the kids in your car who's actually sharing something amazing that happened in his life that day. Uh, we miss uh, the fun that your child actually has, kind of hosting his friends in his car or their car or her car. These are things we miss because we're off. They're often underneath the surface. They're intangible, and they're unpredictable. Yet all the while, they're there, right? They're underneath the surface. Trust is growing, meaning is being shared, and fun, believe it or not, can be had, right? So when we read the list of commandments that Israel is agreeing to here, the list of commitments that they're agreeing to in chapter 10, we feel the weight of all of the mechanical and practical processes. It's a lot. There is a real cost, a real risk in all that they're agreeing to do. However, what we tend to miss, especially in Old, Old Testament passages like this, is the relational component of what's going on, what's underneath the surface. We just see rules about the Sabbath, about marriage, and about giving, and we just think, bah. We miss the reason why God gives rules for the Sabbath, that he really wants us to enjoy the commitment of living according to our nature. He knows that we're made to thrive by resting and to enjoy the fact that while we're limited, he's unlimited and He's good. He's strong. He's providing. That rest reminds us not only do I not need to control the world, but I can't. And even better, I know the one who does, and he's really good. We miss the reality that marriage is a powerfully shaping institution that God wants us to enjoy. Marriage is where we're collectively developed um, by his grace and shaped into families and into communities um, that are relationally displaying his character to our neighbors that we are made to thrive in relationships based on fidelity and bearing with one another in relationship. We miss that we are designed to enjoy God's provision and to celebrate it by giving our resources and time for the thriving of community, and that the local church is actually the greatest expression of reliance on God's provision, a relational caring that communicates his goodness to the neighborhood, to the watching world. For each of these obligations that Israel takes on itself, we can see that relational dynamic involved then, right? Underneath the surface, always there. Reading through Nehemiah 10, we see over and over again this phrase, that the Israelites are saying, that they're doing these things because it's the house of our God. They're concerned with it because of whose house it is, right? Not because they're mere rituals that they're just going through or they're just taking on a list of things to do. There's a relationship that is driving this commitment, that's driving all the commitments they're taking. So if you've watched Stranger Things, um, and maybe you're working through season four right now, I'm not going to give any spoilers, uh, but you'll see the relational fruits um, to the cost of commitment. And you see that through a lot of the friendships there. You see friends who are always willing to throw themselves into danger because of their commitment to one another. They'll face demogorgons, uh, evil doctors, demodogs, the Soviets, the mind flare, school bullies, or Vecna, right? And if that's going over your head, just... Imagine they're taking on bad guys, right? They're taking on bad guys. They get themselves in deep, right, to the costliness of friendship, and all for the sake of the fruit of those friendships that they enjoy. And now, for many of us uh, in Western postmodern societies, friendship is one of the most accessible commitments we have, right? I think this is because they tend to be lower-cost relationships. You don't have to take vows like marriage to enter into a friendship. Um, and yet, they're also still built on something that's more than a contract, right? They aren't like your relationship with a plumber or with a pharmacist, who if they do a bad job, you just go see somebody else. Uh, friendship is also a helpful paradigm for us to think about commitment because not everyone has a spouse. But most of us could probably point to one or two friends. And through these, we see the cost versus reward of commitment, right? And we also see that it requires wisdom to find a loyal friend and a friend that matches with you and is worth The cost of commitment. So now I'm going to do a big jump. I'm going to jump from friendship to God, uh, but I think the relational principles still apply here. And this isn't a Jesus is my homeboy plug. Um, In fact, Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He ate with sinners, he spoke with sinners, and he died for sinners. It was his commitment to his friends, to the sinners that he walked with and hung out with, as well as the sinners in this room. It is far more than just mechanical. Jesus didn't get to the cross mechanically or simply just because it was pragmatic. Being fully human and a picture of what humanity should be, he accomplished his commitments very relationally. He counted the cost. He knew he would suffer. He knew he'd be persecuted. He knew he would be murdered. Yet he was committed. And not just to do the ABCs of salvation, but because he was deeply in love with the Father and deeply in love with sinners who he was coming to save. And that's what Hebrews 12 is talking about when it says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. His joy to secure relationship with us pushed him through the decay of death. His commitments are relational. And this models for us what our commitments are to be at heart. So, again, kind of coming back to our main question to partially answer it why be a people who commit even though we fail? Well, we are a people who commit because our commitments are functionally relational. We are functionally relational. And the only thing that actually changes us to see commitments as more than the cost that they require is the love that they acquire. So I'm going to say that again. The only thing that will actually change us to see commitments as more than the cost they require is to see the love that they acquire. Jesus' death was the cost, but deeper intimacy with the Father and bringing us to the Father is the real gold. It's what was acquired. And speaking of gold, this is a great transition point. Just as gold is refined, so are we refined by our commitments. Uh, So the other day I was having a conversation um, as I was preparing the sermon with uh, Daniel Kersey. uh, And we were talking about house projects. Uh, And if you've spent time with me over the past month, I've probably talked way too much about drainage and gutters and sealing our basement. Um, And as Daniel and I spoke, the idea of caring for a house as a long, slow discipline began to wash over us kind of discuss the practice of having limited time and resources to care for something, uh, in contrast to living in a digital age where we can click a button and make something happen like that. It slows us down. Owning and caring for anything over a long period of time is something that's refining. It refines your commitment. And that's what, exactly what we see in our text today. Each of these commitments and obligations are ones that would weave so intimately into the Israelites' lives that they would, they, they would continually refine their heart's disposition towards God. So in other words, they were so in their face that it couldn't help but help make them question, where's my heart at today? How am I engaging in this? Now, in Hebrews ten twenty four, it encourages believers to continually consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And that's exactly what these commitments did. They submitted the Israelites to dynamic, every day, weekly, monthly, yearly processes that challenged them to consider the state of their heart. It made them ask kind of questions like this. Do I really believe that spiritual loyalty to God is so important that I'm going to let it influence my marriage? Do I really believe that God will provide for me so that I can rest on the Sabbath? Do I really believe that I can trust God to deal with my sins? Is relationship with God really worth closing off all other doors, and all other options. Is caring for my neighbor really worth the trouble and the hassle? These are the kind of questions that would inevitably have come up for the Israelites that would have challenged them as they submitted to these commitments. By entering into these obligations, the Israelites are opening themselves up to wrestle with these doubts, right? And and these kind of questions their whole lives. However, that's not all. They're not just opening themselves up to wrestle with these doubts, wrestle with these questions, They're also submitting to see God at work in them. They're submitting to see God show up in ways that they didn't expect, in ways that they were fearful that he wouldn't. In committing, in a sense, they're kind of denying themselves, restraining themselves so that they could see and experience God's faithfulness, to see him as he promised to show up. Now there's a a verse in Psalm 34 that I think does a great job of expounding this idea. And this is the phrase. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this a phrase is the idea of restraining kind of from all other foods so that you could taste and see how good God is. Uh, it's the idea of not eating uh, Marco's pizza so you can go enjoy a five-star dinner, right? And there's an aspect of faith in this, that it calls us to step away from the controllable, from the comfortable, from the cultural, culturally excusable means of security so that we can actually experience greater depths of God's goodness. So an example of this uh, is our brothers and sisters in Christ who are same-sex attracted and have chosen celibacy out of faithfulness to Jesus and the scriptures. There's a huge cultural cost to living according to a biblical faithful sex ethic. Now, I've had friends describe uh, the loneliness, the frustration, or the confusion that can often accompany this decision, yet they choose faithfulness to Jesus despite their often unchanging attractions and pressure of cultural attitudes because they have experienced real intimacy with Jesus. Their trust in the Lord's faithfulness points to the same sacrificial commitment that the Lord is calling all of his children to in Nehemiah 10 and throughout Scripture. So for those of us uh, who are young and single waiting for marriage, ours is a culture that allows and even celebrates sexual involvement outside of the covenant of marriage. For those who struggle with pornography, ours is a culture that objectifies people and invites looking at sexual exploitation as valid entertainment. In the midst of this cultural moment, God is calling us to a commitment that's going to cost us. And as you and I grow in our faithfulness, we have examples in the body of Christ of people who are walking in costly obedience. They have lashed themselves to the mass of Christ and are forsaking the siren calls because they know Jesus is just that good. So let's remember that as we walk in that process of commitment, we're not alone, right? We have brothers and sisters who labor beside us. So looking to John 6, there's this place where Jesus finishes up giving some pretty tough news to people who are following him. He basically tells them that unless they depend on him, none of their zeal, none of their righteousness, or being a part of the right people is worth anything. And this is so offensive, so frustrating uh, in the exclusivity of this claim that many leave him. And then in verse 66, it says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the only way that you or I will ever commit or grow in our commitment is by seeing Jesus in this light, that he is the Holy One of God, the only one who has the words of eternal life. This is the fuel fuel for our commitment to God and also to one another and to his word. It's only by seeing and knowing Jesus' commitment to lost, broken, and confused sinners that we want to put our lot in with him. And seeing and knowing him refines us in at least these three ways. First, it refines our loves, the way we love. Now, it's very easy to notice that we have a hard time loving people, even the people we like. Yet our commitments, those places in relationships where we would lock into a relationship without an exit strategy, are contexts where we get to actually learn from our failures to love. We learn about our insecurities and how we desperately try to compensate for them by winning people over or avoiding others or denying that we actually have them. And it's here that Jesus' commitment to us speaks to our insecurity, our insecure heart, and says, hey, I know your failures, I know your faults, and you're still mine. I won't leave you. I will care for your broken, fearful heart that longs to learn how to love well. Secondly, it also refines our trust. Commitments are often difficult because we're afraid of being left out to dry, right? Of, hey, I did my end of the bargain, but you haven't done yours. Am I going to get left out here? Committing to remain faithful in these relationships forces us to grow in our trust. But not the person necessarily not following through, but in him who's at work even in our disappointments. It's here that Jesus' commitment to us to make all things new melts our hearts. Where we are reminded that though we have been abandoned by many... There's one who's going to be closer than a brother who won't abandon us. And then finally, it refines our mission. If we're honest, we live most of our lives off mission of living for God's kingdom. We get distracted by our comforts, our ambitions, our self-sufficiency, and committing to God's kingdom despite our constant struggles to stay on mission, however, reminds us that the kingdom is one built on grace, where performance isn't the key and success doesn't always look like success. So to fully answer our question for today, why be it people who commit even though we fail? It's because God's at work, refining our faith by helping us drink more deeply of his faithfulness to us. Committing to Jesus reminds us that the mission of Jesus isn't based on our faithfulness, but on his faithfulness to us. And in order to commit to following God, we have to really believe that first, that God shows up. And that's what Jesus is. He is a demonstration for us that God shows up. That even in the presence of death, God's purpose is fulfilled. That even in the brokenness of the people of New City, God is at work. Let's do this. Let's commit our way to the Lord, to trust in him, because he will act. He will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our justice as the noonday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. That our commitment isn't just a commitment in a vacuum, but it is one done in relationship with you. And we pray, Father, as those who struggle to make commitments, to stand in them, uh, who get insecure when we fail, Lord, that we would not look to our own power and our own ability, Lord, but that we would look to you as the one who overcomes, as the one who makes all things new. Father, help us in the places where we are afraid to commit to you. Come into that corner of our lives, Lord, where we just don't want you to be. And let us see how magnificent your love and faithfulness is to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcityc-I-N-C-Y.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.